What is the best investment that you can make? There are financial advisors around who are ready to give you an answer for that question. But this morning, we're not asking a financial question. We're not asking a physical question. We're considering a spiritual question. What is our best spiritual investment? How can we invest ourselves that we might reap eternal rewards? So let's get started. Today is the second Sunday in Lent, as we've been hearing about. We often associate Lent with giving things up. And that's not a bad practice, yet Lent is about much more than giving things up. Lent serves us as an annual reminder that following Jesus means taking the path to the cross. We see this clearly in the gospel reading for today that Kim read a few minutes ago. And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. It's 769 in your pew Bible. We're going to start with verse 27, a little bit earlier than where she started. Now, these verses that we're looking at this morning mark a very dramatic turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Till now, in Mark, we've seen Jesus teaching and doing miracles in Galilee, but from now on, for the rest of the way through Mark, we're going to see Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and on his way to the cross. Now, as Mark transitions from the first half of the Gospel to the second, he does so with a question. And this is a question that he wants all of his readers to consider carefully. Who is Jesus? Verse 27. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say you are one of the prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter replied, You are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Two questions. Who do people say I am? And who do you say I am? To the first question, the disciples give a partial answer. They leave out some of the worst opinions. They leave out the scribal opinions that Jesus was a blasphemer and quite possibly a demon-possessed individual. John the Baptist, Elijah, or a prophet, they say in response to Jesus' question. To the second, who do you say I am? Peter, on behalf of the others, gives an outrageously bold answer. You are the Messiah, the Christ. Now, Peter's answer doesn't surprise us or doesn't really sound that bold or outrageous because we grew up in church knowing that Jesus is God's anointed one. We knew that Jesus was the Messiah, which means anointed one in Hebrew, that Jesus is the Christ, which means anointed one in Greek. And due to the familiarity that we have, we might miss the dramatic power of Peter's answer. It was bold in that it brought together in one title, the Anointed One, a thousand years of history, nearly 2,000 years of promise and prophecy, and generation upon generation of hopeful expectation and longing that God's man would come. Peter affirms in his answer, that all of these prophecies, promise and promises and hopes made since Abraham and even really since the Garden of Eden are now in that moment 
being fulfilled. You are the anointed one. The Messiah has come. Now, Jesus accepted that answer, but he warned them that they should keep it to themselves. Now, why do you suppose he said that? Most likely, it was because Jesus knew the popular opinions related to the Messiah. And he didn't want to build up any false expectations. Now let's think for just a minute about what was wrapped up in that word Messiah for the people living in Israel in that day. For them it meant the restoration of something that they had lost nearly a thousand years earlier. It meant the restoration of what Israel was when David was king and when his son Solomon was king. It meant the restoration of the religious fervor that they had in those days the military power that they had in those days, and the financial and cultural dominance that they had in their world in those days a thousand years earlier. The nation was awaiting a Messiah who would put the Romans in their place and who would make Jewish faith and culture dominant in their world once again. We might sum up their expectations in one word, success. The Messiah would bring to successful fulfillment all of the national hopes and dreams and prophecies. However, Jesus did not come to be that kind of Messiah. And the starting point for building correct expectations was with his disciples. And he immediately began to paint a very different picture of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. Look at Mark 8, verse 31. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. This would have sounded to Jewish hope and expectation like the very opposite of success. It would have sounded like complete failure. A failed Messiah. The Romans would not be put in their place. They would not be restored to political, financial, cultural dominance. Now, Peter had no interest in this kind of Messiah. who would be such a failure. And he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Mark's choice of word is very revealing. This is the same word used in the Gospels when Jesus addresses demons. He rebukes them and commands them to be silent. It's like Peter is going to command Jesus to be silent. He doesn't want to hear about this failed Messiah. Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter as the one who is taking the devil's line and says, Get behind me, Satan. Now, this is far from the end of the story, as interesting a story as it might be. Jesus frankly tells his his disciples, and he tells us as well, exactly what his messianic mission means for every person who wishes to follow Jesus as Christ and Lord. Look carefully at verse 34. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, If any one of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, Take up your cross and follow me. Now, calling the crowd together indicates that what Jesus has to say is not for a select few. It's not for the twelve. 
is for any person who wants to follow Jesus. And he gives three instructions to everyone who would follow him. And they are very concise and direct. Give up your own way. Take up your cross. Follow me. I'd like to consider them one at a time. Give up your own way. This is a a bit of an unfortunate translation because it softens the words of Jesus way too much. It sounds more like, uh, don't keep trying to get your own way, or it sounds like, don't be selfish. And that's good advice, wonderful advice. But that's not what Jesus said. What he literally said was, deny yourself. Deny yourself. So what's involved in this denial? We find this word later on in in Mark's gospel, and we find it in the other gospels, again built around the story of Peter. Jesus says to Peter, before the cock crows tomorrow, you will have denied me three times. And of course, that's what happened. We see Peter standing next to this fire to keep warm, declaring, I don't know the man. He denied Jesus. He declares that Jesus doesn't matter to him. He's just there to get warm. He's not a follower. To deny someone is to disavow any connection with that person. To deny them is to say, I don't know them, I don't want to know them, I don't want anything to do with them. So how how do I deny myself? How would I disconnect me from myself? As if there's no connection, because there is a connection, obviously. I can't do that. But what I can do is to choose not to let myself be the one in charge of my life. Self-denial involves moving from being absorbed by whatever it is that I want to be to being committed to the will of God. It means disowning any claims that I might have of doing things my way. It means a sustained willingness to say no to myself in order that I might be able to say yes to God. It means a radical denunciation of self-idolatry and self-worship, which our culture promotes all the time. It means putting God in his rightful place, enthroned as the Lord of my life. Second instruction is take up your cross. The Romans used crosses to execute people, very slow and painful way to to die. They were good at what they did, and they didn't waste time digging a hole every time they decided to crucify someone. They'd dig a hole, and in that hole they would set a post. You see that right in the middle. They called that a crux. It was a name for the post that they would set rigidly into the ground. The person to be crucified was sometimes, as in the case of Jesus, forced to carry the cross beam, the patabulum, to the place of execution, where at that place that person was nailed to the cross beam, and then by ropes, pulleys, and sticks, that cross beam was raised up and set into a notch on that post, and the person would hang there till they died. That's how they did it. Jesus says, take up the cross beam of your cross and walk to the place of your death. He's talking clearly about a person carrying the very instrument of his execution. It describes a person who has been forced to accept the reality of his or her death. I believe that we need to hear this in two ways. 
The first is quite a literal way. A follower of Jesus must be prepared to even die because of his or her commitment to Jesus. Many in the early days of the church did just that. They were martyred, they were killed because of Jesus. And many people in the world are today losing their lives because of their commitment to Christ. A professor from the International Center for Human Rights estimates that every year between seven and 8,000 Christians die as martyrs because they have refused to deny Christ. Now, some of you will say, oh, that number is way too low because the Vatican and a very renowned seminary in the U.S. announced within the last couple of years that it's 90,000 Christians a year who die. The difference between those two numbers is that they both include in those numbers Christians who die in any way, shape, or form, Uh, mostly war. There are ethnic wars around the world, particularly in parts of Africa, where Christians die in multitudes, just as part of that war that just encompasses the whole country and the whole land. But those who die confronted with a charge to deny Christ are a lot closer to that 10,000 people a year. That's still a lot. A lot of people who die for Christ. Now, fortunately for us, losing our life for Jesus is not probably going to happen in North America. Not now, anyway. However, we dare not think that these words have no meaning for us because there's another way to look at them. And that is hearing Jesus say to us that we should consider ourselves as dead. Consider me as dead. This is clearly reflected in the words of the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 6, if you look at the first 11 verses, you will hear him seven times tell us that we're dead. We already died. In Christ, we already died. We need to accept the fact that we're dead. Now, Jesus' first instruction was deny yourself. The second, take up your cross. The third, Jesus says, follow me. Go where I go. Following Jesus is just like following anybody else. You go where they go. Where they go, you go. In this case, it means following the path to the cross. Jesus' suffering and death is the pattern for our lives as followers of Jesus. Consider this comment on Jesus' words by Bishop Wright, N.T. Wright. Following Jesus is more or less Mark's definition of what being a Christian means. And Jesus is not leading us on a pleasant afternoon hike, but on a walk into danger and risk. Lent confronts us each year with the fact that Jesus' intentions for us are that we follow him. His journey to the cross becomes our journey. Thus, he tells us that we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Now, Jesus elaborates on these three instructions by means of a paradox that sounds to us like a contradiction, as he says in verse 35, that to keep our life, we must lose it. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Now, we need to explore some of the words that Jesus uses here. First, life. It's suke. We get the word psyche from it, that we get psychology from. Uh, it, the suke is the person in their entirety. 
body, mind, and soul, the whole person. It is that which gives the person an appetite for the good things in life. It is that which also gives that person the awareness of the brevity and the frailty of life. Now, you need to remember, at least until lunch, that suke can be translated as life or as soul. And in the New Testament, they're interchangeably, uh, interchangeable. Jesus says, if you try to hang on to your suke, your life, your soul, you'll lose it. If you give up your life, your suke for my soul, you'll save it. Save, what does that mean? It means to rescue from harm or danger. It's just that simple. You, to save something is to rescue it. Third, lose. Now, this is an interesting word. Uh, have you lost anything this week? If you haven't, you're a better person than I am. I, I lose stuff all the time. Lose your keys all the time. I lost my church keys this week. I finally found them this morning. But you see, when you lose something in that sense, you're usually going to find it. Usually, most of the time, you're going to find it. That's not what the word means. The word means destroy. Destroy. If you try to hang on to your life, you will destroy your life. Those are the literal words of Jesus. Then using the very same words, Jesus turns the idea upside down. He says, if we will destroy our life, then in fact we will save it. But if we let go of it, choosing Jesus over our life, we will save it. Now look again at verse 35. If you hang on to your life, you will lose it. If you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. What we see here in this verse is the image of a man in a room standing before some kind of authority figure And the authority figure says, deny your faith in Jesus and you'll live. Don't. And you'll be dead. The man's offered a choice. That scene has been enacted over and over and over again for the last 2,000 years. Look at this picture. According to an Egyptian Anglican archbishop, this man was one of 21 men who had their throats slit in one event because all 21 refused to deny their faith in Jesus. That was just a couple of years ago. It still happens today. Now, Jesus promises that the man who yields his life and loyalty to him safeguards it, keeps it safe completely forever. Yet, would not our culture scream out to us, who in their right minds wants to walk a path to a cross? Sounds like madness. So let me change that question just a little bit from how the culture would ask it, to ask it this way. Who did, in their right mind, walk the path to the cross? Jesus did. Peter did. Well, Peter was determined not to die like Jesus because he didn't feel like he was worthy of that, so he was crucified upside down. Multitudes of people since then have died rather than renounce their faith in Jesus. 
You can get that picture of Peter there, Matt. Did it show up? There he is. Again, our culture would cry out, why do that? Well, Jesus had an answer to that question, and his answer is set in the sort of language that our culture might understand. He uses commercial language. He talks about profit, gain, loss, what you would give for something in exchange. It's all commercial language. Look at verse 36 and listen for these words that reflect profit, loss, or what you might give in exchange for something. Verse 36, what do you benefit or profit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? He shows us this scenario of profit and loss. Let's say that on the one side, your investment results in gaining the whole world, all its wealth, its privilege, its power, its prestige. And that's such a remarkable return that I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to have the whole world. Can't, can't even dream of it. Maybe we can start by saying that having the whole world, a person could simply have anything that he or she would ever want. On the other side... One's investment results in gaining or keeping their soul, their life, that part of them that transcends their physical death. And Jesus asked the question then, is anything worth more than your soul, than your life? Well, no. We know that instinctively. Down inside we know that. We, we struggle to stay alive, don't we? Because we know the value of life. And we instinctively want to protect that living part of us that lives on even when our body dies. There's a hunger inside of us to, to, to make things right so that our soul will live on. Our best investment that we can make in this world is to deny ourselves that we might embrace God, putting God first, taking up our cross, considering ourselves as dead, to what we used to think was important or worthwhile and following Jesus. Now, Jesus closes with a very sharp warning. He, it, it takes us back to Peter, sir, sitting among the servants of the high priest. Out of fear and shame, he denies that he knows Jesus. He denies that he's a disciple of Jesus. He denies ever knowing him. And Jesus warns us in verse 38 that he will, if we deny him in this life, he will deny us in the next. Let us choose this day to make the best investment we can make for this life and the life to come by fully committing ourselves to following Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. Let us invest, invest in learning habits that help us shift our attention from a concern for self to recklessly, recklessly abandoning ourselves to the will of God. Recklessly abandoning ourselves to the will of God. Lent reminds us that we have a choice to make. We're either going to follow Jesus or we're going to follow self. Every year, Lent asks us, which do you choose? What is the better investment? The very best investment is to take up our cross and follow Jesus. In a moment, we're going to sing a closing hymn, Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. It was composed in 1936. 
at the Alabama Sunday School Convention by Mr. McKinney. The featured speaker that year was the Reverend R.S. Jones. They had been friends for many years. They had done ministry together. The Reverend Jones had been a missionary in Brazil. He loved his work in Brazil. He loved what he did there. But the doctors told him he couldn't go back. The doctor says his health wouldn't allow it. And McKinney and Jones were sitting together at dinner one evening during the the conference, the convention. And Jones told McKinney that he couldn't go back. And McKinney said, what are you going to do? That's that's been your life. What are you going to do? What are your plans? And Dr. Jones says, "I, I don't know. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. And McKinney wrote the words to this hymn and the music in one night, kind of like Philip could do. And he wrote it in one night and introduced it to that convention. And the words are, take up thy cross and follow me. I heard my master say, I gave my life to ransom thee. Surrender your all today. I'd like you to sing that hymn together as a congregation. Kim's going to come and lead it. And I'd like you to sing it as a prayer of consecration to God. Let it be your prayer. Yes, I will follow you, Lord. Let us pray through singing this together.